Russia's invasion of Ukraine has upended the energy system. Europe was importing 58% of all the energy we consume, but that's history. Europe's now decided no more Russian energy imports by 2030, if not earlier. It's also decided we need more renewables, even more quickly, because energy security lies in clean, local and affordable energy. Hello, I'm Claire Warren, editor of Wimpan Monthly, and I'd like to welcome you to our first ever podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Giles Dixon, CEO of Wind Europe. We sat down during the trade body's annual event to discuss the challenges facing the industry and how we can deliver on the ambitious targets set by the EU. It was a fascinating discussion, covering everything from the current state of play across the European wind industry to floating winds potential and why we should welcome the involvement of the oil and gas majors. We're together here in Bilbao. The energy's really high across both the conference and the exhibition. What would you say you've really taken out of this this year's event, perhaps uh, in comparison to previous events? Huge interest and enthusiasm in the industry. 10,000 people have been here this week. Last time we did our annual event in Bilbao in 2019, we had 8,000. More exhibitors, more people, lots of politicians coming from all over Europe. I've spent a lot of time on the exhibition floor and there has definitely been a real energy there. A lot of very interesting conversations going on about how the wind industry is progressing. And I think one of the things for me is that I've really got a sense of how the industry really believes in what it can achieve. But we have enormous targets to achieve across Europe and a lot of challenges at the moment. Do you want to outline some of the challenges as you see them? I think there's a real understanding among the wind industry that we have a big responsibility to help Europe deliver energy security. Energy policy has been turned on its head. So Europe now wants to reduce Russian gas imports by two thirds by the end of 2022. It wants to end all Russian energy imports by 2030 at the latest. And at the same time, it said we need to accelerate the deployment of wind and solar, which gives us this huge responsibility. And what this event this week has been focusing on is how do we deliver that? We have 190 gigawatts of wind in the European Union today. The EU now wants us to increase that to 480 gigawatts by 2030. That is a colossal target. It's a wonderful target. If we can get there, that's absolutely amazing for everybody. But I mean, I guess the first question, can we get there? Yes, we can. Certain things have to happen. First, there needs to be a significant simplification of the permitting rules and procedures for new wind farms and for the repairing of existing wind farms. Second, there needs to be an increase in the level of investments in electricity grids, both transmission and distribution grids, including more investments in cross-border interconnectors between different countries. Third, governments need to ensure that we have a healthy supply chain. The wind energy supply chain today in Europe is not healthy. Do you think governments are actually doing enough to hit their own targets? This week, we've had two strategies out, one from the UK, one from Germany. Germany's high targets for both on and offshore. The UK very much focused on offshore, but also nuclear. Do you have any, any thoughts generally on those strategies and perhaps who's leading the pack across Europe? 
across the board in Europe, collectively, the governments are still not doing enough to deliver their own targets. The issue is not ambition mm. at national level. The issue is governments making sure that the right policies and regulations are in place, especially on the permitting, to enable them to meet their own ambitions. You mentioned Germany. Germany is leading the pack. That is absolutely clear. And it's worth just reminding people what the German government has committed to do this week. They have said that from 2025 onwards, they want to build 10 gigawatts a year of new onshore wind. That's huge. They've increased their offshore wind target for 2030 from 20 gigawatts to 30 gigawatts. We already knew about that. Perhaps most encouragingly, though, the German government have made it very clear they know they can't deliver these higher targets for onshore or offshore if they don't tackle the permitting issues. And they've said very clearly we need a new approach to how we manage the expansion of wind energy and at the same time protect biodiversity. And they're saying we should get away from the idea that we need to protect every single animal and every single bird. And instead, we should focus on preserving overall population levels and protecting species, and not every individual bird or animal. And that the expansion of wind energy should be a matter of overriding public interest, which governments take as seriously as the other crucial public policy interest, which is the protection of biodiversity. They're implying that perhaps there's been an imbalance, certainly in their own permitting system. There are difficulties around that with overcoming local challenges, local areas, how they might feel about it, conservation groups. There's going to be quite a battle, I would imagine getting some of this through? As Wind Europe, we work very actively with the biodiversity organisations. We have something called the Ocean Coalition, which is a coalition between offshore wind farm developers, transmission system operators who are building the offshore grids, and the biodiversity NGOs who are defending and protecting nature in the sea. And the idea of this coalition is... The three groups work together to ensure that offshore wind is built out in the most environmentally friendly way. Okay, And this is a great model of collaboration. Of course, the biodiversity groups that we are talking to are the Europe-wide confederations, yeah, BirdLife International, WWF, and so on. But they are saying to us, look... We need to communicate to all of our members at local level the importance of the expansion of wind energy. So that's good. There's quite a few organisations that are starting to come on board that might perhaps traditionally have been slightly opposed to what, what we want to do in, in this industry because we all see that we have to do something in the longer term. So we were talking about you know, Germany leading the pack. Um, who would you say is at the back of the pack? France is not doing very well on onshore wind. Government announced recently their new energy numbers for 2050. It basically implies they build only 750 megawatts of new onshore wind every year when Germany is building 10 gigawatts. Spain's doing pretty well, um, if not very well. 
at least two gigawatts a year of new onshore wind. Now they have an offshore wind strategy for the first time. They want three gigawatts of, of course, it will be floating offshore wind farms by 2030. That is good. UK is doing a great job on offshore wind. Now they've added another 10 gigawatts to their 2030 target. That's good. And they're keeping the door open on onshore wind. Looking elsewhere, Poland's doing a very good job on offshore wind. We are still waiting for the Polish government to change its distance law to allow us to start building significant volumes of new onshore wind farms. They've drafted the legislation to soften this 10-H law, they just haven't presented it to the parliament yet. It's stuck politically. Elsewhere in Central and Eastern Europe, we are encouraged by what a number of governments are doing. So we had the Romanian minister here in Bilbao, and he's now started a competitive process where they're going to give capital grants to both onshore wind and uh, solar and they want to announce the awards within the next few months. And then at the end of this year, they plan to run their first contract for difference auction for new onshore wind. Serbia want to build onshore wind. We're seeing a lot of activity elsewhere in the Western Balkans. Italy, well, they'd like to be building one gigawatt a year. Perhaps if there's a country that really has challenges on the permitting that they need to tackle, well, all countries have challenges, but Italy has a lot of big challenges. But the government know that, yeah, and and they're trying to to tackle the issue. Actually, you know, on the permitting, Claire, it's, it's positive that every government now gets it, that there's no point just having a target. If you don't sort out the permitting. Yeah, and they are taking steps now to simplify their permitting. And the European Commission is about to give a helping hand here. They're going to issue very detailed guidance to national governments on the 18th of May about how exactly they should be simplifying their permitting rules and procedures. And of course, we've got some legally binding EU rules on this, which came into force last year. All permit decisions have to be taken within two years of permit application, one year for repowering projects, and every country has to have a one-stop shop for permits. And the European Commission is now going to start enforcing those binding rules. And do you think that they they will have the teeth to really enforce this as fast as we need it to happen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Commission get it totally, that this is the number one bottleneck to the expansion of renewables. Let me just share something which I think illustrates the politics and the importance that the EU is attaching to this now. Wind Europe said to the European Commission last year, look, we've got a real problem with permitting. You've got to spell out to the national governments how they can simplify their permitting rules and procedures. There's good practice on all aspects of permitting in one or two countries across Europe. Put it all together, disseminate it proactively and encourage governments to follow the good practice, okay? And the Commission said, okay, well, you know, we could do that next year in 2022. And at the start of this year, they were saying to us, well, you know, maybe September we'll issue this guidance. Russia invades Ukraine. Commission come out and say, right, this guidance has got to go out now. Let's turn to the rather thorny issue, the fact that the OEMs are not actually making any money. And we're entirely reliant on them to actually be producing the turbines that will allow us to, to roll out renewables as fast as we want to. How on earth are we going to address that issue? They're, they're, they're not making any money and the supply chain, the costs in the supply chain are increasingly going up. Indeed. The permitting is crucial here. The market is only half the size of what it should be. 
because we don't have enough permitted projects. Last year, the EU installed 11 gigawatts of new wind farms, onshore and offshore combined. Over the next five years, the EU will install on average 18 gigawatts a year. We need to be installing 35 gigawatts a year. So the turbine manufacturers don't have the economies of scale that they ought to have. The factories are not operating at full capacity. They're operating at about half capacity, yeah. Also, the developers are competing against each other in the auctions for a pie that is one half the size of what it should be. And so you find in many countries that prices that are winning the auctions are very low. And it's very difficult for the turbine manufacturers to deliver turbines at those prices. So you sort the permitting is the first thing we've got to do. Second thing, um, the way governments design their renewables auctions is very important. Auctions used to be, and still are in most countries, decided on price and price only. That's changing. The European Commission, at the encouragement of Wind Europe, has now issued new guidelines that say to the national governments, actually, you can have non-price criteria in your auctions. So you take the latest Dutch offshore wind auction. Yep. Most of it is not about price. I'm most of it is about what they've done, in fact, is they've split the one and a half gigawatts in two, and one half of it is, is sustainability criteria. That's what will determine the decision on who they select. And the other half of the, uh, of the site is what they call system integration criteria. So, you know, what's your plan for batteries in the wind farm or for electrolyzers? Yeah, what's happening on the demand side with all the electrons you'll be producing? Yeah, and that's good because the European wind energy industry has a very good offering, both on sustainability and on sector integration. Yeah, and we will be rewarded for this offering. Then on auctions, governments have to stop doing negative bidding. They must resist this temptation. So if you take the last Danish offshore wind auction for the Tor, the winning developer has to pay 390 million euros to the Danish government for the privilege of building that wind farm. It means the winning developer has 390 million euros less with which to pay its turbine manufacturers and the supply chain. And also, as I understand it, the, the turbine manufacturers are unwilling to set fixed prices at the moment because they can't, because they, we can't see how much prices of course. are going to go up yeah, yeah, in yeah. the next yeah. few years. Yeah. Is that going to encourage developers to continue pursuing what they're doing or is it going to put some people off, do you think? We will see. And as you say, the supply chain is struggling now with higher steel prices, higher commodity prices. Yeah, We still have bottlenecks in global supply chains, which means not only is there uncertainty among the manufacturers about the price of their uh, materials and components, there's uncertainty also around their availability. Mm. Yeah. And so the, the, uh, this inflation risk for the OEMs is greater than it used to be. Part of the solution here may be to have uh, more indexation in the in the prices. Mm. The CEO of Vestas recently talked about the fact that, that smaller companies may well go out of business because of because of the cost within the supply chain. Is that an issue that you see coming up? 
Look, there are pressures on the supply chain. It's not just the OEMs, it's the component manufacturers, it's those providing the materials, those in the logistics part of the supply chain, yeah? Uh, both for onshore and offshore. Everybody is under pressure. And you know, when everybody's under pressure and not making money, then consequences occur. One of the, the big issues, and, and has come up in, a, in conversations that I've had, obviously, is China yep. and China's manufacturing and obviously um, raw materials. How do we keep our supply chain in Europe if OEMs are making a loss and so obviously they need to, to get components at low cost when the lower costs might be elsewhere? So the European Union is concerned about the relatively high level of dependency on the import of certain key materials and components from China. They're putting pressure on us to source more within Europe. So the European Commission has a target now that 60% of permanent magnets should be sourced in Europe by 2030. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. Um, Now, as an industry, we want to work with the EU to try to make this happen. But this doesn't happen overnight. Um, You know, a lot of the components and materials that we're importing from outside of Europe, it would be very difficult to source today from inside of Europe. We would very much like to source them inside of Europe. We now have a dialogue, very active dialogue with the EU and with national governments about what they can do to support the development of the supply chain in some of these components and and materials, because we do want to be sourcing this from, from Europe. Let's move on to a, a totally different topic, floating. Yeah. What, what's your feeling generally about how far floating is going to go? Is it the game changer that some people believe it is? And how quickly might we see it happen? It's going to go a very long way and it's going to start moving big time very soon indeed. We're certainly seeing a lot of news around floating at the moment. That's, that's Absolutely. Sure. Europe has 120 megawatts of floating wind farms in operation today. Mm. Yep. Um, by 2030, Wind Europe believe we will have seven gigawatts. There are projects being developed. France is currently running the world's first auction for a large-scale floating offshore wind farm off the south coast of Brittany. It's 250 megawatts. The results will be out later this year. Spain has its three gigawatt target for 2030, as we mentioned earlier. There are a number of projects being developed in Italy. The Portuguese government has recently announced that they want to run an auction sometime soon for up to four gigawatts of floating offshore wind. Greece wants to do an auction as well. Things are really moving. And of course, we then have the Scotwind auction in the UK, where 15 gigawatts out of the 25 gigawatts that won were floating. It's really moving. And we've, we've got well beyond the research and development pilot stage. We're ready for scale up now. If we move quickly on the industrialization and the standardization, we can scale up very quickly indeed. Yeah, those are the two key things on floating now. It's not about the technology development anymore. It's about the, the manufacturing base, crucially. How big a turbine do you think they can actually support on a floating platform? Oh, well, look. Vestas and Ocean Winds have announced a contract uh, under which Vestas will supply 10 megawatt turbines for a, a small, it's pilot size, floating offshore wind farm that Ocean Winds are developing uh, in the French Mediterranean near Perpignan. It will be operational next year. 
Okay, it's funded by the French government. Ten megawatt turbines. You know, it's we're in the same ballpark as as bottom fixed. Yes. Yeah. It's it's, it's a very exciting yeah. industry, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and there's certainly a, a lot of a lot of developments. A lot of companies are showing interest in it. Um, one other subject that's, that's perhaps not come up for me so much um, is around the involvement of the oil and gas majors in the wind industry. What's your feeling generally about about their involvement in the industry, how um, how useful they might be to us as an industry in order to, to build out as fast as we want to? It's good. Yeah. Because they have a wealth of experience and expertise in offshore energy. And infrastructure. And course. infrastructure, yeah. Mm. Especially in floating infrastructure, of course, yeah. Um, and they are investing large amounts of money in the development of offshore wind farms, and that is great. They also have a wealth of experience and expertise in offshore health and safety. Absolutely. Yeah, and we are learning a lot from that, and that is very positive. They've got great experience also in how to engage coastal communities in energy projects and investments. The numbers, which is where we started this conversation, are huge. The growth that governments are asking from us is huge. We need as many people as possible, you know, in the marketplace helping to make this happen. Yes, we don't need to be precious as an industry. We just need to walk, move forward and get it done. Yeah. Really. Thanks very much, Giles. It's been great talking to you. Not at all, Claire. Um, great pleasure. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conference. Very much so. Yeah, and yes. thank you for being here. In our next episode, we talk to a turbine manufacturer, a policymaker and a developer about how the war in Ukraine has perhaps achieved what the slow-moving crisis of climate change could not in galvanising a quicker transition to renewable energy and how the wind industry will beat that challenge.